0: host, Riley Bounds, and this is the solemn podcast where we discuss and examine the intersection of the modern renaissances in evangelical literature, philosophy, and spiritual formation. Today, I'm excited to have Dr. Holly Ordway on the podcast. Dr. Holly Ordway is a Fellow of Faith and Culture of the World on Fire Institute. She is a visiting professor at Houston Baptist University, and holds a Ph.D. in English from the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. She is the author of Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth, Beyond the Middle Ages, Apologetics and the Christian Imagination, an Integrated Approach to Defending the Faith, and Not God's Type, an Atheist Academic Lays Down Her Arms. Dr. Orway is also a published poet and a subject editor for the Journal of Inklings Studies. Her academic work focuses on the writings of the Inklings, especially C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. More information will be given in the show notes, including a link to her website and her new book, Tolkien's Modern Reading, if you want to find out more. So, Dora Way, welcome, and thanks for joining me today.
1: Oh, my pleasure.
0: Great. Well, we're going to be discussing literary apologetics today, Doctor Orway. So, uh, some of us might be new to literary apologetics. So, why don't you uh, tell us what it is and how it's done? Well,
1: well, that's that, that's a big subject. So, I'll just have to kind of stop me if I start going on too long.
0: Okay.
1: So, as your as your listeners undoubtedly know, apologetics is um, giving a defense for the faith, showing why you know why we believe what we believe. You know, in the words of, of Saint Peter. Um, you know, making, making a case for the, uh, the the reason for the hope that we have within us. So most people tend to think of that work, that making a case, that giving a defense um, in terms of, you know, logical arguments, philosophy, theology, does God exist? And all that's important. That's really important and good. But another aspect of the human person is not just the intellect, but also the imagination, the emotions, the, the will, all these are part of what, make us human beings and the imagination is a faculty that's just really critically important and that's the faculty that gets involved in what we call literary or imaginative apologetics and that's why i like to take that step back and talk about just the the underlying role of the imagination because really literary apologetics is more than just making an argument in the form of a story. In fact, when people try to do that, it usually doesn't work all that well because they're not actually engaging the imagination. They're kind of using it as a, like a little cover or, you know, the, 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 the sweetener around the pill and people typically detect that and they, they don't like it. But what literary, what literary apologetics really is about is harnessing the power of the imagination to make ideas meaningful so that the intellect can properly grasp them. And really this is at the foundation of what I do as an apologist and an evangelist. Because as I think I argue in my book, Apologetics and the Christian Imagination, I think that our our biggest issue in the modern day in terms of sharing the faith is what I call the meaning gap. People don't find the concepts of Christianity to be meaningful. It's not even so much that they disagree 50 years ago, 100 years ago, that was more often the case. You'd get people who were atheists because they rationally had issues with certain aspects of the faith. Today, mostly, I think people just don't really get it. They don't find it engaging. They don't find it interesting. They don't find it comprehensible. It's not so much that they disagree. It's that they they don't even get it. They don't find anything to latch on to. So we're not even at the point of disagreement. We're we're, we're further back from disagreement. But of course, when people don't understand something, they're, they're going to dismiss it. They're going to reject it. And it becomes, you know, becomes a rejection. And even in terms of Christians, people who have been maybe brought up in the faith, a lot of them have a very tenuous and marginal connection to their faith because they haven't really grasped it they've accepted certain propositions. Okay. Yeah. But it's not fully grasped by their whole being, by their imagination, by their will, by the whole person. And the intellect doesn't have a good grip on it because the, the ideas are so vague and so shadowy. And this I think has a lot to do with why so many young people walk away from the faith when they go to college, for instance, usually, you know, in my work with, with, um, students, I found usually these experiences are not because of some hugely traumatic issue or some catastrophic question. They just get into an environment where people have different assumptions and they get a few questions and it just kind of, they just kind of drift away. And I think that the tragedy of it is that the, the reason for that is far back in the fact that they never had a real grasp of the meaning of the faith, so that they didn't even have the motivation to pursue the real question. They just kind of faded away. So all this comes back to literary apologetics in the sense that stories, stories are a really important part of how we as human beings communicate. That's how we learn who we are and how we relate to the world. It's they're engaging. Um, they're, They're part of our, you know, our human our human nature our human you know quality is to tell stories and so that gives us an opportunity in literature to do some of that meaning making um, and to help people get a robust sense of what our faith actually means and then <laughs> they can actually deal with do i really believe this or not and then we can actually get somewhere with apologetics
0: right yeah, I was reading an article just before this by you on the Word of Fire, uh, Word on Fire website, and it was uh, talking about how uh, we often parse down the poetry in the Bible and the narrative and all that, and seek for some, uh, I guess, hidden theological meaning. When it's like, well, no, that that is part of the meaning. The meaning, the form of poetry, the form of narrative, is part of the meaning, not just the content of of it. And uh, I I think you're, yeah, you're really hitting on something there.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, this, this again, ties into our whole formation as, as Christians, because we want people to be reading and taking in the the written word of God in the scriptures, but the scriptures are not like a code book that we have to somehow crack and and get the real stuff, the real theological message. Because Mm -hmm. if you think about it, if we treat scripture like that, we're being a bit dismissive of how God chose to inspire the writers Mm -hmm. because, God chose to inspire the writers to do poetry, and you know, a song. We've got the Psalms, we've got the Proverbs, which use you know very vivid metaphors in there. Lamentations, we've got the Song of Solomon, we've got loads of poetry, um, and of course, we have all of the Old Testament histories that are stories. I mean, they're they're historical, they're they're true, but they're told as narratives. God could have inspired the writers of scripture to just give us a theological manual and he didn't uh and so we have to step back and say okay if god chose to give us poetry we should take it and appreciate it as poetry and that and see always when i say this to, to certain audiences they get a big alarmed look and they, they think it means but that means it's not really true and then I want to have my head explode um, yeah. because this is a fundamental misunderstanding of, of poetry. Because, for instance, if I, if I say, you know, the Genesis account is written in poetry, people are liable to melt down. But this is this is not a statement about truth or falsity or how we interpret it. It's it's actually simply a factual statement about the genre in which it is presented to us. The Psalms are poetry. The Psalms are also the inspired word of God. So, okay. I think part of the problem we have with people who are dismissive of the Bible in general, because it's written in poetry or who refuse to engage with poetic language because they're afraid that somehow it makes it less infallible um, is that they don't understand how to read literature and they don't understand how, how poetry works, how language works, how metaphor works. Um, As a metaphor, is a means of presenting an idea and a metaphor can be true it can be false it can be a mixture of the two so we just have to understand how metaphors work i, I devote quite a lot of time to that in my um, book apologetics and the christian imagination because this whole idea of what is literal and what is figurative is not well understood by a majority of people today and that has a lot to do with the fact that that our, you know broadly speaking in the popular culture we haven't we kind of lost the ability to understand poetry. So that's a great loss. So again, in terms of imagination, if we engage with literature, if we understand how to read literature and understand how does an author present ideas in the form of a poem, in the form of a story, in the form of, you know, explanation, how are these things different? How are they the same? We're actually going to be able to read the Bible more attentively, more, you know, faithfully more understand, understanding it better this is all good
0: mm-hmm. right yeah I, I think you really hit on something there with um, with how people misinterpret poetry nowadays um, I mean what you got to understand when you read poetry one of the core tenets of poetry is obfuscation making the uh, mundane new again you know I've heard it put. Um, and with that I mean it, it alludes to the inherent mystery of the faith and that we we can't grasp every every part of God. Um, there's there's an inherent mystery to poetry, and there's an in- and that alludes to the inherent mystery of our faith in God. So,
1: yeah, and that's you know that's such an important word. Um, and most people, I think, tend not to understand it the way that you presented it correctly, as mystery is not you know like just a puzzle that we we solve. The the and it's not that we can't understand anything. You know the fact that well, God's existence, God's triune nature—you know—the Trinity is the deepest mystery of all. Um, how can God be three and one? Well, it doesn't mean that we can't know things about that. He's revealed Himself to us as Trinity, um, and He's—you know—we see for instance, the mystery of the Incarnation. How can how can Jesus be fully God and fully man? Well, we can understand things about it with our reason, but we can never completely understand it there's always going to be something more there's always going to be some additional depth that we can't comprehend fully because we're human and you know i can't take in the infinite and you're absolutely right um, in noting that that's shared by poetry shared by good literature and that's the that's the beauty of it right because a rich beautiful poem is going to have levels of meaning. And again, this doesn't mean that poetry is always gonna be sort of totally incomprehensible, weird words on the page that doesn't make any sense. No, 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 that's actually bad poetry. <laughs> but the, the point of a, a poetry's mystery is that there are gonna be levels of meaning and that we have to take some time to dig into them and appreciate them. And as we do that, we're going to gain additional insight into what it means. I mean, take, again, coming back to the poetry in the Bible, you know, take the Psalm that says, the Lord is my shepherd, you know, Psalm 23. Well, on one level, we, we have to, we have to understand this is a metaphor because the Psalmist is not trying to say that, you know, God, you know, is just a, is a shepherd. That's it. That's all he does. That's all he is. Um, he's saying, you know, God is like someone who watches over the sheep and I am like one of the, one of the sheep. And then that actually leads us into all sorts of really beautiful connections about being cared for, about being rescued, um, about you know, knowing, we look, look forward to Jesus, you know, picking up on this, I am the good shepherd, um, about knowing the master's voice, you know, being protected from the wolves. There's all these things that, that unfold as we, as we sort of meditate on this image that the, the poet, the psalmist has given us.
0: Mm-hmm. Right Well, I know that um, some detractors, well, maybe not detractors, maybe that's too strong a word, but some but some people who may not understand literary apologetics, they might think that it's it's kind of taking away from the bigger task of apologetics, which typically is just a, a philosophical defense of the faith. So what, what would you what would you say to people like them like who say that maybe the the most important thing is that we preach the gospel, you know?
1: Well, I would, I would first of all say, yes, the most important thing is that we preach the gospel. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, I agree with you. Um, and it's how do we do that in a way that people can hear it? Mm-hmm. So the first thing I want to say is that I honor the intention there. I honor the zeal and the urgency to say we need to help people hear the gospel. I completely agree. That's so important. But then we have to step back and say, okay, it's one thing to proclaim the gospel, but are people receiving it? Are people hearing it? Now, obviously always there's responsibility on the hearer. What is that person's heart? Are they rejecting it, et cetera? We can't, you know, we have to recognize that's a reality. Um, but there's also a, a responsibility in the person doing the proclaiming. I need to use the language and mode that's appropriate to the audience you know if i'm talking to a group of school children or i'm talking to a group of graduate students i have a responsibility to use language that's going to be comprehensible to my different audiences that's simply you know a responsibility and if i you know don't do that then it's on me if they don't get it and i think that's where we come into the role of of the imagination because so often when people are presenting really good arguments, effective arguments, sound arguments for things like the existence of God, for the historicity of the resurrection, all these things, they're, they're just not connecting. The arguments themselves are good, but they're not connecting. Because for instance, let's talk about the existence of God. If you're trying to, say, make a case, you know, five arguments for the existence of God, but your interlocutor has in his mind an image of God as, oh, yeah, the old man in the sky who's going to blast me if I say a bad word. Uh They're not going to engage with the five arguments because those five arguments are going to sound like, let me give you five arguments for the existence of elves in your garden. Like, come on, nobody seriously could believe that I got leprechauns in my backyard. So what's what are you even playing at? Don't waste my time. And the culture is such that a lot of people, not even the snarky ones necessarily, a lot of people have just assimilated this idea of God as this sort of ridiculous figure or scary and slightly, you know, horrible figure who is just looming over them, judging them if they say the wrong thing. And they either find that ridiculous, as they should, or they find it so kind of threatening and awful that they don't want to consider that it might be real. So when you say, let me explain that God exists, you're not talking about the same God. And so I think the very first thing you have to do in that instance is to say, okay, you you say you don't believe in God. What God don't you believe in? (laughs) Tell me about this God, and maybe after hearing about this, I might say, you know, well, I don't believe in that God either. (laughs) Let's talk about the God that I do believe in. So that's part that that is something that can be done, you know, through argument. Um, But fundamentally, there's the bigger question of whether people have have that imagined picture and how we help them get that imaginative picture. Because if people have the idea of God as you know the being you know the source of all being you know the father in a, in a actually positive sense then they might actually be interested in okay you so you you say this god actually exists let's mm-hmm. see what you have to say about that and that's something that literature and the arts can do is to kind of lay that groundwork so that people at least have an awareness that this is an idea that's worth talking about um, because in, unless people are interested, they're not going to listen. I mean, this, this, this is a fundamental aspect of teaching. It's not just about religious you know, concepts. If people don't care, they won't listen. Why um, mm-hmm. should they, right? So that's, right. that is, I think, the necessity of the imagination. It's not in opposition to these philosophical arguments. In fact, if we who do work with the imagination are doing our jobs well, it makes it easier and more productive for the people doing the philosophical arguments to have an audience who will actually listen to them. So we're actually all mm. in this together.
0: Right, yeah. I mean, it doesn't just tell you that the faith is true like philosophical apologetics does. It shows you, it demonstrates it to you. Um, and th- I think that that's, a, that's the great thing about literary apologetics is it, it supplements the philosophical end, which is necessary.
1: And they're both necessary because you know, we've been talking about you know how you know, literature supports the philosophical arguments, but it goes the other way around. Because if someone has, for instance, been deeply engaged by an imaginative presentation, you know, like I, I was really drawn in in my own story to engaging with questions of faith through Chronicles of Narnia, through the Lord of the Rings, being interested, um, you can be drawn into the faith by imaginative presentations, by art, by music. And that can take you a long way but at some point, well, the intellect needs to be fed as well. And so the the philosophical, the historical information is going to help nourish that. So it's not a case of either one being able to work in in isolation. Um, You know, literature needs philosophy, philosophy needs literature, you know, that, it goes back and forth.
0: Right, yeah, exactly. Um, And we, we obviously, I think, we need a disproportionate amount of philosophical apologetics today. Um, just because of the, uh, the deep secularization that we have, especially with scientism and, and such. But for, for the majority of history, I'd say it, it was not, there was a disproportionate amount of people that were brought to Christ by watching how Christians acted and treated each other. Um, and so through their actions, they showed that the faith was true, just like stories can impart that to us. Uh, or poetry. Um, but how can we effectively integrate the imagination and apologetics?
1: Ah well, again, another another big and good question. Um, I think the first the first step to integrating it is just to recognize that the imagination is necessary and important. And that's a huge big step because we can very easily compartmentalize. and I'm an academic, so I know how easy it is to com- just focus on the intellect. So we've got the intellect, you know the reason, and we've got the will, the volition, because that isn't, you know, isn't the same thing. We have our emotions, also very important, part of how God made us. Uh, and we have the imagination, which is the meaning-making faculty, the, the faculty that takes in what our senses see and, and puts it together in a, in a meaningful picture. And then after we have this meaningful image, then our reason can act on it to say, is it true, is it not true? and our will can act on what our reason has said. And so oh, this is true, therefore I will do something about it. So I think the, the biggest first step is just to say, okay, the imagination is not just a nice extra. It's not, it's not just sort of an optional add-on. It's, it's really, really important. Because if we don't have a strong, healthy, nourished imagination, giving meaning to the different ideas that we're discussing, as we've we've been talking about, then the reason hasn't got much to work on, and then the reason doesn't give any substantial to the will, and how can the will make a robust decision? I am going to, you know, love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, when the idea of what that means is is attenuated. So it's all it's all connected. So how do we how do we build that? sort of integrated approach. And I think it starts with every individual Christian seeking himself or herself to be integrated in the faith, to say, okay, do I in fact love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my mind, and loving my neighbor as myself? It's kind of convicting if you if you think through that every now and then. It's like, well, am I just doing one, maybe one bit of that and not the whole thing? And I think when we talk about loving God with our heart, that's a, a kind of a good place to think about the imagination, you know, the, the heart as the seed of of pulling things together, of of assimilating meaning. And then your mind, you know, thinks about these things, but your heart needs to be fed also and in, in line with, with your, your head. Uh, so that's something that we can do as, as Christians, as apologists, is to make sure that as we are walking with the Lord, that we are nourishing our minds, but also nourishing our imaginations. And then that is going to inform the way that we speak about the faith, the way that we share the faith, um, the way that we live out the faith. As you just pointed out, with personal witness is huge. <laughs> this is a really important. Um, and so all of this, I think if we start with ourselves with that quest for real integration and, and real personal holiness, then that's going to help us naturally find ways to share the faith that are more integrated themselves.
0: And it did just dawn on me as he was saying that, that the imagination is part of our mind as, as we're called to love the Lord, our God with all our mind. And we typically just limit that to the intellect, um, but I mean the, the, the two are, the, the two are in the same place. So I mean when we when we uh, neglect the one, I mean the other will. I mean, yeah, it 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 would be very sad to to let that wither in you the the imaginative component.
1: Yeah, and I think sometimes some Christians are a little hesitant about the imagination because they think about you know scripture's warning about vain imaginations and things like that. And of course, the imagination can go wrong. Um, of course, we can feed it with bad food. Um, so can the reason, you know, we can feed our, our our intellect with lies and confusion and our intellect can go wrong. Oh boy, can it ever. So, okay. Any of our faculties can go wrong, but if we ignore it, then we guarantee that it will be malnourished and starved and will go wrong. Um, so we need to just be attentive to all these faculties. And I think that's a great way of thinking about it. You know, if we're gonna love God with our mind, yeah, that includes our imagination, our creative faculty, as well as our intellect.
0: Yeah, very well put. Um, Well, how do we communicate uh, very complex doctrines like salvation and sanctification in these imaginative ways? Uh, But even to that end, should that even be a goal of literary apologetics?
1: Uh, Well, that's that second question, I think, is a a really is a really good one, because I think different approaches have different strengths and weaknesses. And so philosophy has the great strength of precision, of being able to articulate distinctions very clearly, very precisely. Um, And that's not something that the arts have as a strength, because Mm -hmm. that's not the mode that that they are. Um, so I think when we talk about conveying the details of a particular doctrine, that's not necessarily the task of the arts. Um, you know, we, you, don't, you don't ask a hammer to do what a saw is supposed to do, but they're both necessary for building a house. Mm-hmm. So I think when it comes to the arts, the role is more to provide meaning for the concepts. So something like sanctification, you know, this process of becoming holy. Okay. We can have, you know, doctrinal, theological, philosophical discussions of it. We need, you know, we look at, say, the catechism and say, okay, well, what does the church teach about this? You know, um, know, we can look at it. We need to look at that in very precise terms. But then we can say, okay, well, do I want to be holy? Do I have a picture of what holiness is? Is this idea of holiness attractive? And that's the kind of thing that stories are really, really good at. Do we want to be made holy? I mean, I think about, for instance, um, you know, C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles, and, you know, the Voyage of the Don Treader, we have the de-dragoning of Eustace, where he is, he is turned into a dragon because of his greedy thoughts. And he has to be, he has to have the dragon skins peeled off of him, and it's very painful. And this is a, fantastic image of sanctification and is it able to convey the precise details of what that means you know in your life as a christian of course not it's a boy who's been turned into a dragon having his dragon skin peeled off but what does it do it conveys very powerfully that eustace is miserable as a dragon he he first he thinks it might be kind of cool i can fly and stuff but he it's, he's miserable he he's sad he's lonely um and he, he longs to be made whole. He longs to be made clean. And therefore, he welcomes this painful process of having the dragon skin stripped off of him. And that's the kind of thing that stories can do to say, I'm stuck. You know, I, I don't like who I am. I'm not who God is calling me to be. I want to be holy. And being holy is actually a good and attractive thing. It's not being a stuck-up prig. That's not being holy. It's you know fullness of life and, and joy. I want that, even if it's gonna be kind of painful in the process. Mm-hmm. And that, that then is the imaginative literary contribution to it. The philosophical, theological, doctrinal discussions are really important. And those can happen and should happen in, you know, the, in the theological and philosophical language, but they're gonna mean something if someone comes to it and says, I want to be holy. How, how can I be holy?
0: Mm. Yeah, that's, that's great. Thank you. Um, well, in your article, Come and See, The Value of Storytelling for Apologetics, uh, you note that we need narrative and think of our lives in terms of narrative. Well, why do you think that that is that we think like that?
1: Well, I think it has to do with, with how we are created beings. Because I think sometimes we tend to forget that time is a thing that God made (laughs) you know matter okay matter we can we can sort of imagine him creating you know the galaxies but time is also a thing he made he is Mm -hmm. outside time he made it and he put us in it. so we dwell in time he doesn't um he answers into time in the incarnation that's what's Mm -hmm. so amazing about it one of the amazing things about it but we dwell in time the way a fish dwells in water. And so that's mm. natural to us to have this sense of, of cause and effect, you know, of, of narrative flow, of beginnings, middles, and ends. And I think one of the sort of deep apologetics arguments really for the existence of God is the fact that we have the sense that we have a sense that our lives are narrative arcs, and mm. that if they're interrupted in certain ways, it's tragic. I mean. We see this very sort of viscerally, that we're always sad when someone we love dies, and this is part of being human, but there's something more tragic about, you know, a seven-year-old child dying than 90-year-old grandma dying because we're gonna miss grandma. We love her, but she's had a full life. She's, you know, she's reached the end. and we can say goodbye to her and, and it's somehow it's fitting. A seven-year-old child dying, that's wrong. That's not fitting. That's terrible. That's it's terrible in a very different way than the sadness of losing beloved grandmother. Mm-hmm. And why should that be? You know, if we're just if we're just smart animals, there's no particular reason why we should have that sense. It would be like the same in all cases. Right. Um or arguably even less. Oh, oh, we knew that person for seven years. No big deal. (laughs) That's not, that is totally not how human beings react. Mm. And I think that's a a sense of our in our inbuilt sense that we are supposed to have a certain life. And this is an interruption of it. There's a narrative, there's a pattern that we intuit should be the case. Um, And that's part of of being made by God, you know, mm-hmm. for eternal life. We're not supposed to have it be interrupted in terrible ways. Mm-hmm. We're not supposed to have to interrupted at all, but certainly not in these ways. <laughs> right. And then, if you think about, you know, how we how we assimilate um, things that are important to us, you know, we tell narratives. This is what happened to me. Um, you know, whenever something happens, we don't just say the thing that happened. We narrate the the, the circumstances in which it happened. So storytelling narrative is is really just kind of baked in to what it means to be human so if we're going to talk about things that matter storytelling is it's as natural as breathing to be human so that's how we how we do it
0: yeah do you think that uh poetry uh comes in as equally efficacious as as narrative for literary apologetics
1: I do. Um, and I think here it's worth saying a little bit about, about poetry <laughs> it's, it's in my experience that most people in the modern day, they, they hear poetry and they immediately think, oh, that confusing stuff that my teacher made me read and, you know, it was horrible and awful. And and that, please audience, please forget that. Um, poetry has been actually the prime mode of, of storytelling um, from... The beginning all the great epics like the odyssey and the aeneid and, and and beowulf all poetry poetry is a mode of presenting something could be narrative could be lyric poetry could be song and and in fact anybody who enjoys listening music enjoys poetry because song lyrics are poetry that's poetry and so we don't think of that as poetry because it didn't get labeled as poetry and given to us as this incomprehensible assignment, you know, in school. Find the symbolism in this poem. Oh. No, poetry is just a way of, of presenting stories, ideas, emotions, um, characters in a way that uses language and rhythm and and sound in interesting ways. Um, so I think once we get kind of past the incomprehensibility of, of late 20th century poetry, that's another issue. Um, actually, good poetry is fun to read. it's interesting, it's engaging and, and, and of course anybody who's listening to music already appreciates poetry. So it's a really underdeveloped, underappreciated area now, but I think has tremendous potential um, for you know conveying conveying important ideas.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, some believe literature written with any end or agenda in mind isn't real literature at all. Um, Well, do you agree with that? And I mean, is there a way to write from a Christian worldview without being or coming across as, I guess, manipulative?
1: Yeah, um, I don't agree that it's not real literature. And I do think that there is a way to do it right. But I, I understand why people are skeptical, because there's a lot let's just be honest, there's a lot of really terrible Christian literature out there um, mm-hmm. and it is really, and, and just to take, if you take an idea and your whole focus is on the concept and you just kind of wrap it around with a story, that's not art, that's propaganda. Um, and nobody likes that in what, whatever the message is. Um, it, it's, it might have a certain effect, You know, it might gain the effect that you want with a small percentage of the population, but it's not going to be effective overall. It's manipulative. It's it's just bad art. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, there's been an alarmingly large amount of that in you know just in Christian literature in the last I'm going to say 50 years. Um, certainly, the last I'm going to say 30 30 years or so. Mm-hmm. We have Christian writers who have again good intentions. They want to support a wholesome Christian life. Um, but they make stories and films. Films actually are, are, are pretty bad examples of this at this point. You know, just these, these trite, shallow, lame stories that don't have any bearing on actual life wrapped up with a little Christian bow and like, oh, no one swears in them, so they must be wholesome. Um, and like, okay, but they don't they don't really present anything authentic. And they can even present stereotypes, um, you know, like the the whole "God's not dead" thing, which I found excruciatingly painful because it, it just presents this distorted image of 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 academia as a sort of battleground and like, oh yes, the evil atheist professor, you know. Like, oh come on, this is all just shallow and stereotypical, and it it reinforces faulty ideas about what it means. It's just really bad, It's <laughs> bad yeah. artistically and doesn't, doesn't do any good. Um, right. So I think we need to have literature and film that presents things in a way that is um, not manipulative. And that doesn't mean not having a message that you want to convey, because you know, artists always have a message they want to convey. You can't not because you convey what you believe either implicitly or explicitly. And there are different levels of that. So for instance, Tolkien um, wrote that the whole of the Lord of the Rings was fundamentally religious. Um, It's coming out of his deep Christian faith, but he doesn't make it overtly religious because that's not the mode that he chose to work in. But all of the Lord of the Rings is Christian in its ethos because he himself was a devout Christian. Um, Not overtly. Um, We get C.S. Lewis who does... does it more overtly. You know, we've got the figure of Aslan, who is Jesus' figure. So he he wants to convey who Christ is. You know, that's what the whole Chronicles are about, all about Christ. But he does it subtly. The stories are marvelous stories in and of themselves. You don't have to be a Christian to appreciate them um, because he's a great storyteller. And I think that gets us to what really works. You want to have you know, the ideas you want to convey, but you need to do it well. You need to do it with good art. And I actually, I will give you an example of, of some television that's doing it well. I've been really impressed with The Chosen. Um, I think that show is doing a really good job of, of doing Christian storytelling um, in a way that is genuinely engaging and meaningful and, and not manipulative or propagandistic. Uh, it's really well done. And so you can do it well. You can have a message that you're presenting, but you have to give equal priority to telling a good story, to doing good art. We've had far too much toleration of just patting people on the head and saying, oh, what a nice message. Yeah, your characters are cardboard and your prose is flabby, but but it's a good message. So therefore, hooray, we're going to just promote it. No, (laughs) we want to have a good message and a good story. We We need both of those things.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, um, I think that authenticity is the cornerstone of, of good literature, uh, along, along with form to, to a degree. And, uh, I mean, the Bible is nothing if not authentic. Um, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, yeah, the, the Bible does break and create a lot of narrative forms, especially with the Gospels. I mean, it's the, the Gospels are uh, they're very underrated as far as the uh, how, how they're written, how they're composed. But I mean, the Bible is also not afraid to be real with you. You know, I mean, Jesus death was incredibly violent. I mean, he was also sexually abused when he was stripped naked. Um, I mean, he was not, the the Bible doesn't pull punches and really neither should we. And we shouldn't do it in a voyeuristic spirit or anything like that. Obviously not. Um, But I mean, we do need to be as real with people as Jesus is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We have to show that we're aware of the world as it is, because if we make promises about eternal life, but seem to not notice that the world is broken Who's mm-hmm. gonna Who's gonna believe us? Uh, so right. I think that's you're right. That's absolutely key. Right.
0: Well, in closing, here, Dr. Orway, um, just what practical advice would you give to budding literary apologists?
1: Well, I would advise work hard to improve your craft. Um, so actually, two things. I think they go in tandem and they they kind of flow from from what I've I've been saying. Work hard to improve your craft. And work hard to grow in personal holiness because those two things really go together. Um, because we talked about having this this implicit faith that infuses all of your work. Well, in order to have that faith infuse your work, you got to have the faith. Um, and you know, we're we're called you know to a fullness, a perfection of Christian life. We won't <laughs> attain it instantly, that's for sure. But we're called to strive for that. And I think sometimes weak weak art weak christian art gets produced by people who who don't have a strong enough faith it's a little bit too intellectualized or it's a little bit too much just emotional but no substance and so they're they're actually a little defensive and so they get they get actually propagandistic as a kind of defensive move because they they're a little unsure of their own faith i think for instance the reason that tolkien could be implicit in the lord of the rings is because he had a rock solid faith he didn't need to be you know showing off, look how Christian I am. He was all the way to the bone, right? So we, we, we need to have that striving for personal holiness, to know the scriptures, to spend time every day in prayer, just really have that. But then also the, the other counterpart is to, to work hard at the craft. There are no shortcuts. There just aren't, um, you know, I'm a working writer. I've, I've been writing all my life. Um, and you know, this is what I do, I write. It's hard. Writing is hard work. Um, and I think just recognizing that it's hard work and you're not gonna get good at it instantly. What other field would we expect that you would instantly become expert at it just by sitting down and try it? Like we wouldn't, we wouldn't expect that. Imagine, you know, like playing sports. You wouldn't expect to be Michael Jordan, you know, instantly pick up basketball. So we, we have to be striving to work to improve that craft. And it's, it's an ongoing process. You know, I'm a better writer now than I was 30 years ago. Also better than I was 10 years ago because, and, I, and God willing, I'll be better 10, 20, 30 years from now. Always striving to be better at our craft, reading other writers in all sorts of different genres, studying them, um, trying to learn from them and getting into community to help each other. And I think that is a really important piece um, because writers tend to have a picture of writing in isolation and it's true. At a certain point, it's me and my computer, me and my notebook, but we need to be in a community. And that's one of the things I've been doing at the Word on Fire Institute is developing within the Institute writing groups, you know, Inkling style writing groups for people to come together and give feedback for each other and, and support each other, you know, Say okay, well, this is working. This isn't working. Can I have some advice? Can I have some suggestions? That kind of thing. Having a, having companions in the journey who will challenge you, who won't just pat you on the back and say good job. Who will say, hey, good effort. But have you noticed that you know your your plot has a hole in it, and you're you know, or oh, this is great, but it could be a little bit better if. We need that, and I'm I'm blessed to have people like that in my life um, mm-hmm. who can do that for me, and I do that for them. And I think that is so essential that we have to view this process of doing art take it absolutely seriously. Because if we're going to honor God with our art, we need to honor God with our art. We need to give Him the best we have, and not just the sort of okay, <laughs> right? Yeah. So personal holiness and working at your craft are the two things that I would I would commend everybody.
0: Mm thank you again for taking the time today, Dr. Wardway. I really appreciate you coming on and uh, have a happy new year.
1: My pleasure, and you too.
0: All right. Well, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.